But I'd like you to look at Ephesians 3, and I'm going to start reading at verse 10. Ephesians 3 and verse 10. When we start reading verse 10, it reads, His intent. And obviously we need to think, who is the His? Well, the His is God. And if we look at the phrase just before, God, at the end of verse 9, God who created all things. I want you to know there is a Creator. There really is a Creator. I mentioned last week, I've been reading this book, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? Very well written from a professor of mathematics, I think it's from Oxford, Christian, but writing in a very gracious and and in some ways quite a restrained way about the fact that huge, huge tracks of modern discovery, whether it be astronomic discoveries or whether it's, you know, right into the, the very details of of DNA and things and all sorts of other things in between have pointed again and again to a creator, to intentional design. The case has never been as strong for a creator, even from an almost non-religious uh, viewpoint. It causes embarrassment and trouble. Don't take any notice of the Dawkins stuff. A lot of it is just, frankly, almost religious fervour based on a determination that naturalism and humanism are all you can ever say. When you get down to brass tacks with real scientists, many of whom who do not necessarily believe in God, they would say all the evidence points to intelligent design. There is a creator. But the incredible thing is you can know him. And we can know something of what his intention is. God who created all things, his intent was that now, In this time, this is what he's planning. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, that's Christ Jesus, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Isn't that good? God the creator has made a way for you to approach him with freedom and confidence. Isn't that amazing? You can come and talk to this amazing creator and you can do it with freedom and confidence. How? In Jesus Christ and through faith in Jesus Christ. In all he's done, his death and his resurrection, in him and through him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are, for your, which are your glory. Then Paul goes on. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. So this creator, he knows as Father, which is the great revelation of the new covenant through Jesus Christ, our Father in heaven. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love, 
that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That is a magnificent prayer. And we're going to, if we, I think we'll have time, we're going to pray some of that into each other before we go this morning. I want us to pray this sort of stuff. That the power of God will come on us. He'll strengthen us with his power through his spirit in our inner being. That Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. That we will be rooted and established in love. And that we will grasp more and more of the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. To know his love which surpasses knowledge. That we be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful passage. Just let's keep it open because I'll refer back to it a few times. (coughs) When you come to pray, it's very important that you have a clear idea of the God you're praying to. Our belief about God, our understanding about him, will really determine how we pray and how we even view prayer itself. We need prayer to be rooted in a full understanding of the God we come to. You can see that is clearly happening with Paul. I hope you would join me in believing in a God who is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all creating, the, the only creator, the true and living God, who is holy, who is wise, who is loving and gracious, who is merciful, a God of his word, who doesn't say a thing and not do it, who keeps his promises, whose promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. A triune God, one God, three persons. Hard to understand, but we are talking about God. But what it means for us is a God who actually has engaged with humanity through the person of Jesus Christ, a God who is manifest in the flesh, who understands our frailty, understands our weaknesses, understands what it's like to be a human being. God-man, Jesus. The Holy Spirit, God with us. God actually with us when we're here worshipping, when we're listening, when we're praying. Praying in the Spirit is a reality. The Holy Spirit is active Amongst us. This is the God we believe in. It makes prayer very exciting to realise the sort of God we are talking about and believing in. And it helps us to pray properly. If we believe in God who is our Father, gracious and loving and good, God is all powerful, it will affect our faith as we come to talk to Him. On the other hand, if you've got a very small view of God or a very tanked and distorted view, not a biblical view at all, you probably will pray little, you might not pray at all. You may even have a view that's almost like fatalist or a bit like a view of a Muslim view of Allah, you know, that it's, it's all mysterious, he'll do what he wants anyway and he won't be affected by us. Well, that wouldn't be true either. And just this way of thoughts, I just want to give you, and they are quite short, don't worry, Eight basic truths about prayer. They're very simple, but I want you to draw attention, draw your attention to them in the light of a week of prayer and even of our time this morning. And I trust whoever you are, God will speak to you out of it. Here's the first one. Very simple, very obvious in one way, but a reminder. In the Old and the New Testament, it is very clear that God is personal. That is, he's a person, he's not just a force. And he responds to those who commune with him. 
That is the God we are dealing with. He is a person. He's not just a blind force. He also loves to commune with his people. He likes relationship. He is a relational God. When we pray to God, we are not talking to a force. We're not talking to a figure of our imagination, a figment of our imagination. We're not talking to some natural thing, an object of nature, as I said, like a force. We are certainly not talking to ourselves. Prayer is not a psychological exercise whereby we increase our confidence or talk out our worries. That is not what prayer is. We are talking to a personal, real God who communes with us. Second point, the God we pray to is a God who acted in history and continues to act. He is imminent, is the word. He's not just out there, he's here. And he loves to act in history. Now you can say, well if he acts, why didn't he do this, why didn't he do that? We've all got questions like that. There would be some that I'd know that would have that, as committed Christians, probably this very weekend. Oh God, why didn't you intervene there? But the fact that we have some questions does not for one minute alter the fact that God is a God who's engaged in life and acts. He is not the watchmaker who wound it all up and walked away and let it tick tick away on its own. He's involved intimately in his creation. When Paul was preaching, he said this in Acts 17, verse 27. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. Watch out, he's not far from each one of you. That's good, isn't it? That's scary in a nice sort of way. You think, oh, God doesn't notice what I'm doing. He does. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth and actually has a particular eye on his people. We're the apple of his eye. He would know intimately what was happening with us. God wants us to reach out to him, to find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Third point, God has the power to act. When we ask God to do something, we know that we're speaking to a God who has the power to bring about an answer to our prayer, the power to act. Did you hear those magnificent verses we read, verses 20 and 21 of Ephesians 3? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. Isn't that a wonderful verse? I mean, you don't get anything more than that out of coming this morning. If that just gets into your spirit, what a verse, what a word to base your prayer on. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. Here's the fourth point. God is susceptible to being influenced. Basically, we can influence him. Now, this can be a problem for our Western minds. Actually, it is a problem for the way our culture has educated us, which is not necessarily wrong. It's a very good form of education for some things, like developing technology and science and many other things. In education, it's big on rationale, big on logic, big on you've got to understand it step at a time. But it is a particular cultural way of responding. And it, it does mean that when we hit something that doesn't quite compute in our brains, 
we really do have a problem. It must be one or the other. Now, this is what I'm talking about, so I'll explain myself. Is God sovereign and does whatever he wants to do? Or does God respond to our prayers and do what we ask him to do? Now, for us, that can be an almost unsolvable intellectual problem. Hence your Calvinism versus Arminianism and a lot of other things historically. But actually, you need to know the Hebrew mind, particularly, does not feel particularly phased by saying both of those things are true. Both of those things are absolutely 100% true. And the Hebrew mind responds by saying, and God is wonderful. The answer lies in God, and I am just a human being. Your ways are above my ways. Your ways are higher. So it is true that God is never sort of caught out or fooled or, whoa, what's happening next? Of course he's sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning. It's also true that God responds to what we do and pray and apparently alters his mind. Both are true. They are both in the Bible. They are absolutely true. And your problem is not with God. It is just that your dear little mind just cannot compute it. And you just need to take a little Hebrew-esque response of saying, because God is the answer. Somehow these two parallel lines meet in God. To me, they're parallel. I can't see them ever meeting. They meet in God. And we have to respond to the word and live in the light of God's word. The Bible makes these things very clear. It makes it very clear that God responds to human influence and request. Listen to sort of obvious, Matthew 7, 7. Jesus taught his disciples, ask and it will be given to you. I mean, it just seems so simple. Ask and it will be given to you. And presumably the other side of that statement is also true. Don't ask and you won't be given. Don't ask and it won't happen. That seems to be the implication. There is a definite implication of a cause and effect link between us asking for things and receiving them from God. The Bible gives us a bit more detail on it. Listen to James 1, verses 6 and 7. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. James 4, verse 3. Just notice what I've just read. I don't want to hurry on. So there's an issue of faith, and that man should not think he received anything from the Lord. James 4, verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Aha, there's an issue of faith, there's an issue of motive or character. 1 John 5, 14 to 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So there's the little bit, according to his will. Aha, you say. That's the get out clause. Who knows his will, you know. No, it's not like that. I'm going to take a moment just to to really touch that one because I think even our Christian traditions, particularly in this part of the world, have caused us to slightly undermine our confidence and our faith with what I would consider, in the end, a bit of a misuse of this concept of if it's your will, Lord. You can find the will of God. 1 John is simply encouraging you, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, if we ask anything according to his will. It's not putting a mystery 
get out clause, it's saying you need to pray in the will of God. And the implication, I think, not only there but in scripture, is that you can find quite a bit out about the will of God. A lot of it is very clear. It's in here. So a lot of our prayers need to be word-based, rooted on the word. And that gives us a confidence that we're praying in line with the will of God. There are actually probably two sorts of prayer that you can get mixed up on this issue of if it be thy will. Obviously you you see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says to the Father, please take this cup away from me, but if it be thy will, you know, I, I, I will receive it. And we can think that's an issue of doubt there, that Jesus may be confused or uncertain. And indeed, some liberal scholars try and push that in that way, and even the the Christ and the cross. But we know that is not true. There's no question of Jesus being confused and uncertain. What's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane? What we're observing in the Garden of Gethsemane is a prayer of consecration. Now, a prayer of consecration is utterly appropriate, and really many of us need to do that sort of business with God. And what it is, is a prayer of commitment to the will of God, whatever the cost. And basically, and if it be thy will, it's not like doubt, confusion, oh, I'd like this, but I don't think it'll happen. It's actually, I know this has got to happen, and God, I'm not looking forward to it, but God, I am in your will. I surrender, if you like, to your will. And I think we will often and should often consider prayers of consecration. They're appropriate. To some extent, Dave touched it slightly in his testimony. There's these moments in our lives when we say, God, this is a tough call for me personally, but I just know what you're doing. And, and, and although I'd quite like you to change it, I say, if it's your will, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for what you're calling me to do. Prayers of consecration. I don't think we learn much from the Garden of Gethsemane about what I would call, and the Bible calls actually, prayers of faith. James 5 verse 15 talks about the prayer of faith. Now, I'm not belittling the consecration. They're just slightly different things. I'm not belittling it at all. There's the prayer of faith, which is much more about getting things to happen because you clear the will of God. You're asking him to change things. Just remember Jesus' own teaching, the parable of the friend at midnight, the parable of the importuning widow. In neither of these can you conceive of a sort of dithery bit, like, I'm asking for this, but if it's your will, I'll accept you won't do it. It's not like that. Jesus says, look, wait, you know, the importuning widow is going to keep pestering till she gets justice. And I want you to pray like that, says Jesus. Pray and don't give up. Or there's the friend at midnight who's almost rude in his boldness, breaks in and says, please give me food for my friend. If it be thy will, maybe you'll say no. No, no, that's no sense of that. So we are dealing with a prayer of faith and a prayer of consecration. And I think as we're Christians praying and doing business with God, we need to work at what we're doing. Sometimes there is a genuine, in fact often, consecration element, that we are committed to the will of God. But uh, whatever it means for us, I I, I may be uncomfortable. But actually there's often a lot more, probably in a day-to-day sense, need to get on the front foot and pray those prayers of faith. But they are also linked, as our readings show, to other things. Because James says, you know, if you doubt and you're not sure, then don't expect to get it. He says, if you ask for wrong motives, you don't expect. So God wants to do business in our character often as well. And he wants to build our faith up as we pray. 
I think sometimes our ifs, if I can put it like this, I hope I'm not being offensive to you, but I don't mind if, if it challenges you. I think sometimes our ifs can be not a sign of holiness, but a sign of laziness. Have we really done the business of knowing some sense of what God's will is on this? Are we really seeking to read in his word and give a foundation for what we pray? Or is it actually just a sort of sign off, leave it to you, I'm not quite sure what to pray. And I think we can do business with God. Have we used the gift of tongues in prayer? If you have the gift of tongues, I think personally it has a massive use in intercession. I believe personally that is what's, and I know Terry Virgo and Rambert Boo agree with me, so just a name drop, so I'm in good company. When in Romans 8 it talks about when you don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit helps you with prayers you can't utter. I think that's probably about the gifts of tongues. That sometimes it's not so much I'm backing off, it's that I don't know what to pray, I'm just going to pray in tongues because I want this to change. God, I need you to speak into this situation. I need to know your will on it. I need to know your active participation in this problem. So you can pray in tongues. It's a way of praying when you don't know what to pray for. And I encourage you to use that gift as well. Seek the word of God. Use the gift of tongues. Do business with God. Don't just think, well, let's leave it and see what he does. That isn't how scripture encourages us to approach prayer. And of course, let him examine our motives. Are we doing it, as James said, with wrong motives? Then let God do some business. He'll tell you. He won't leave you in the dark. Let God touch you and do some business with you. But again and again, the Bible demonstrates God responsibly reacting to his people, showing a willingness to respond to prayer. He's chosen to operate that way. Okay, I'm going to be quick with the last few points. Because point five is this. Why do we need to pray? Well, these are aspects of prayer. We are weak and we need help. That's why we need to pray. (laughs) Nowhere in the Bible is there a doctrine of human self-sufficiency. We are not sufficient in ourselves. Once again, our culture pumps us up. Our culture is very humanistic and it's very me-centred. And so there is an assumption which comes through in a myriad ways, comes through our media, comes through lots of ways we're taught, that we have the answer to a problem. We human beings, you as an individual, you've got a problem in your family, somewhere you're going to have the answer. You've got a problem at work somewhere. You're a bit down, you're a bit up, you're whatever it is, you've got it in you to solve this. And our culture, that's the blame culture, immediately something goes wrong, the snow stops everything. Who could have avoided this? Well, perhaps no one could. As one dear counsellor said, I think, in a sort of way, on the news last night, well, actually, it was just a lot of snow and we haven't got much grit. There must have been a human answer to this problem. Somebody's head must roll. Because human beings can solve any problem there is. No, they can't. Don't be such an idiot. They Actually, we are not self-sufficient. We are very weak in many ways. It's a sort of pride. And we need to ask God. We need to be persistent and shameless sometimes. Like the importuning widow who feels her lack of control of events. Who feels her frailty and vulnerability. How is she going to get any change out of this judge? She is going to persist until she gets a breakthrough. And that is an attitude that we're encouraged into with regard to prayer. We want it to be very polite, no mess, no fuss. God doesn't teach us that way. He teaches us to press through and to to say, God, I can't do this. Myself, I have no answers in myself. Quickly, sixth, prayer is a wonderful privilege. A wonderful privilege. 
And I think even as Christians, we do not quite calculate how wonderful it is. We don't quite appreciate it. We can come and speak to the living God. As we've already read once this morning, and it's not the only scripture that encourages us, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's magnificent. Isn't that magnificent? Who wouldn't avail themselves of that? And I speak to myself. (laughs) I feel I'm such a mug. I, John Groves, leader of Winston Family Church, I'm a mug. I confess it. How little I talk. I've got freedom and confidence to come to the living God as my father. Why on earth don't I do it more? And I leave you with my own challenge. Why on earth don't we do it more? It's such a privilege. We can come. It says we can recess, have assistance from heaven. We can draw on the age to come. I mean, I hardly know what it means, but we can do it. We can draw in the powers of the age to come. That sounds pretty wonderful to me. We can draw in the powers of the age to come as we come in the sense, anticipating that age. We are in that kingdom. We are born into that kingdom. We have access to the king. The king of kings. It's amazing. Seventhly, prayer changes things. That is evident in our own lives and it's evident in history. It's a fact. Prayer does change things. It's like it's just true. Now, I know we have our disappointments, but overall, there are lots of things that reinforce this. And when you look at the Bible, it's quite evident that some of the most important things, particularly in the New Testament, in Acts, seem to happen around a prayer event. So Pentecost, they're praying. The first evangelistic push and breakthrough. Going to Cornelius. Peter's praying, Cornelius is praying. The setting aside of Paul and Barnabas as apostles to the Gentiles. All of these things come out of times of prayer. And as you begin to look, you think, actually, a lot happens when they're praying. Some of it is like, yes, God answers their prayer, but which is clearly what you're looking for when you start off. But some of it is God just interacts. So Paul and Barnabas sent out. We don't know what they're praying for. But in a time of prayer, there's a major change. So there is no question, in an absolute sense, prayer changes things. Not just prayer brings answers at a straightforward level. Not just that. That happens. But prayer changes things. God speaks in times of prayer. God changes you in times of prayer. God changes your perspective. It is a very dynamic experience to pray. And we must not miss the opportunity. It's always a two-way thing. God speaking as well as us speaking. And finally, final point, eighth point, prayer can be taught and it can be learned. And that is amazing. So we can get better at prayer, or presumably we can stay more ignorant and feeble. There's a sort of element where, (coughs) quite clearly, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, and Jesus didn't mock them and rebuke them and say, what are you talking about, teach you to pray? You can't pray. Nor did he say, you shouldn't be asking that, you just do it. Jesus actually taught them. You can actually work on prayer. You can get better at it. You can learn how to do it. And he did it by providing that model prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer. He did that, and he did it, told them to ask, and he taught them about being like the importuning widow, and he taught them being like the friend at midnight. He did quite a lot of teaching on prayer. In fact, Jesus does more on, there's more about Jesus praying in the Bible than there is about him preaching. And in fact, Jesus himself models prayer. And if Jesus needed to pray, I think I probably do. 
You know, he got up early, he went and you know, he prayed all night before he chose the 12 disciples, etc., etc. So we can actually learn by looking at the model of Jesus, by learning from what he's teaching us, from learning from, say, Paul, what we've just read in the last few minutes, we can actually learn how to pray effectively, how to pray in faith, how to pray with a sort of a right view of God, a right view of ourselves, and can be very successful. Now, as I close, and we're going to stop, we're going to do a little bit of praying before we go home this morning. I want to share with you something I picked up on Friday. In the light of all I've said, on Friday was at this uh, prayer and fasting day with Terry, and it's great. You get, it's a very eclectic mix. In other words, it's a funny old mix. You think, why am I here? Why is he here? Who, who got? But Terry's always operated like that. He just he operates on the way he wants to. It's great. Um, he just invites you, and it's a privilege to go. And one of the people there was a guy called Toppy, who perhaps nobody here much knows, but he's a Nigerian, he's a black guy, who leads one of our churches in the north part of London. He's a great guy, he's a friend of Mark Driscoll, and you know, he's a substantial character in his own right. But Toppy was sharing about some of the black churches in London. And what you don't hear on the media is how we've got some massive churches in London it's just they tend not to be white, they tend to be black. And so there was one quite near to Toppy, and I can't remember the name, that's just as well. But they gathered, listen to this, 35,000 people for a New Year's Eve prayer meeting. I think they took over Millwall Football Stadium or West Ham or something. And they are planning to take Wembley Stadium in a couple of years for a New Year's Eve prayer meeting. You didn't hear that on the news, did you? And so... That's 35,000 people praying for our nation in London. Thank God for the Africans. Well done. And, and they're in there praying. And, top, and this is a big church with thousands. So Toppy, who I think himself is Nigerian origins, he, he had the lead around and, and was chatting about, and he said to him, the question we'd all ask, how do you grow a big church? I bet you know what's coming. But Toppy told it so well. The guy looked at him, just like quizzically. It didn't look arrogantly, just... He said, you pray. That's all he said, you pray. Toppy said he put his Bible under his arm and went home like this. I mean, he said, like this almost, shrugged his shoulder, you pray. And they pray at practically every service they have. Everything's a prayer meeting. Everything seems to be related around prayer. Now, there are issues about whether they could do with a bit more preaching, and we could all be right here, yes, but they don't do the word quite like us, which is true. But they don't do too badly the way they do it. And, and I think they preach the gospel as well. Interesting, I, I may, I mean, I know this is on tape, so whatever it is, modern day, we don't use tape, but I, I this isn't going to be, kind of, I just can't remember all the facts, but so I may be mixing it up because there's more than one of these big churches in London. And one of them, who, yeah, I will tell you a story because it's good for you to hear this. We've got a church in London called Northwest Church led by a guy called Duncan. I've been there. It's a church of maybe about a couple of hundred ordinary sort of, you know, mixed, mixed groups, not only just, uh, just English, white, white, Anglo-Saxon, but it's, it's an ordinary sort of New Frontiers church in London. And Duncan has a very good relationship with another big black church nearby. I think it's called the Jesus House. This is what, it was quite powerful hearing it. Basically, this big black church paid £40,000 to give away hampers in a big needy estate nearby. Big needy council estate. At Christmas, this Christmas. 
£40,000. But they encouraged the North West Church to front the giving of distribution. They put on it from North West Church and the Jesus people, or Jesus House, and yet they paid for the whole thing. I think that shows a pretty good spirit. This same church has had Boris Johnson coming to their carol service, I think, or to maybe another service over Christmas. And Boris Johnson said, and I know he was being a bit of a politician, this church does more for the poor of London than almost anybody else I know. So that's pretty powerful. Let's hear the end of the story. Around the same time, around the Christmas period, the pastor of this big black church was on the politics show and was completely being grilled because of their attitude to homosexuals. So the BBC or whatever, who does the politics show? I don't know, ITV. The media is not at all interested in all the poverty thing. All they're interested in, this guy is not politically correct on gay issues. And so he was being grilled on this programme. And, and according to Toppy, it, or was it Matt Hosey, one of us was telling us, it was quite powerful because the group on the television, on the politics show, included a very overtly gay, a very upfront gay councillor on the uh, London Council, who's, who's very, very obviously gay and very upfront about it. But in this grilling time, he suddenly said, I just want to say... I've been to this church several times and they've always received me with great grace and great love and then said, independently of this Boris Johnson thing, and they do more for the poor of London than anybody else I know. It's just like the New Testament. Right in the middle of almost this trial by television on this guy's views came this, what we might call, hostile witness saying, I've just got to say, these are beautiful people, even though I don't agree with what they say about gay issues. Now, I think there's something powerful in all that, and I'm not even sure what it all is. I think there's the fact that you have to minister to the poor these days, to some extent. It's a bit like, it says, is it in 1 Peter, my memory jerking about all over the place, 1 Peter 2.12, I'll be be quick, 1 Peter 2.12, because I feel this is of God, 1 Peter 2.12, where it says this, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. So they're in there to accuse them of being anti-gay, but they couldn't help but say, but these are magnificently compassionate people. And, and uh, I feel we've got to learn from that. We've got to minister to the poor because it gives you some grounds when people come, because we're going to offend people as we preach the gospel. We can't not do it. These guys are showing us the way. They're not aggressive. They're just godly and biblical. And then there's this wonderful challenge about prayer. You want a church of 30,000? You've got to pray. That's all you've got to do is pray. 